Hello, and welcome to Born to Dance, the podcast from Matthew Bourne's New Adventures that explores and questions why dance moves, inspires, and excites us. My name is Paul Smethurst, resident artist for New Adventures and your host. Each week, I will be joined by members of our extended family to talk about their journey through dance and how it has impacted their lives. Even glancing at today's guest's astonishing resume, it's clear that dance and championing dance is the lifeblood that fuels her. I would hazard a guess that her incredible career spanning almost every facet of the dance industry from strategy and development to advocacy and mentoring is truly a vocation. She began her life in dance as a performer, teacher, and one of the pioneers of the community dance movement before moving into more organisational roles, ultimately becoming Director of Dance UK and Director of Dance for Arts Council England. In 2013, she was awarded the Jane Attenborough Dance Industry Award and CBE for Services to Dance. Her formidable wisdom and expertise are enveloped in her gentle, warm, nurturing nature. And here at New Adventures, she is a beloved member of our family and blessedly still a member of our board after stepping down as chair earlier this year after holding the position since 2015. Having officially quote-unquote retired from her career in dance, she is still as active and involved as ever, dancing with the Encore East Company at Dance East and joining the occasional New Adventures workshop. And I can attest that she is as beautiful and graceful a dancer as she is a human being. Jeanette Siddle, welcome to Born to Dance. (laughs) Paul, thank you so much. Oh my goodness, it's a good job. It's a podcast. You can't see me blushing. I'm redder than your jumper. (laughs) But that was so generous and so lovely. And thank you very much. You're so welcome. (laughs) I mean, it's I think it's really hard to sum up your amazing career. But I just wanted to touch on just how generous and, and nurturing you are as as a person and the way that you know personally I, I feel very grateful to you but I know that as a company we we wouldn't be where we are without you you've really you've really helped and guided us it's just such a pleasure to have you with us on the podcast oh thank you and it, it's been such a pleasure and still is such a pleasure to be part of that new adventures family how are you today Jeanette apart from blushing Calm down a little bit, thank you. I'm absolutely fine. It's a lovely sunny day. What's not to like, really? No, <laughs> it's great. We, and we get to have a conversation about dance, which, as I said in the introduction, is pretty much your whole world. It always has been, and it's true, as you say. You know, I kind of retired about five years ago, and I've been busier than ever. But now, instead of talking about dance and thinking about it and funding it and all those other backroom things, I'm now dancing a lot, which it's amazing. It's your time. It's your time to be the participant, isn't it? It's my time to dance. Yeah. I'm going to ask you, when was the last time you danced? And I reckon... It was probably quite recently. Yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, amazing. Okay, tell us, what were you doing yesterday? Yesterday, well, in the morning, I did a class with Russell Maliphant. Uh, Just casually, as you 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 do. do. It was on Zoom, and I was in my sitting room, and went off to Dance East and did a ballet class. Wow. (laughs) So you're pretty much having a similar schedule to a professional dancer at the moment. 
Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Yes. And a lot of it is to do with Encore East. And with the pandemic, Dance East had to close its studios. I kind of moved to Ipswich when I retired because Dance East was there and uh-huh. I wanted to do more dancing. I hadn't envisaged I wanted to do quite as much as I'm doing, but, you know, that's fine. I'm not complaining. Up until that point, Dance East had managed Encore East, which is a company of over 50-year-olds, there's 16 of us. Uh, and we just decided we wanted to carry on and do stuff. And we managed to do stuff and we've probably done more than we would have done had the pandemic not happened so mm. it's, it's extraordinary really i think we're a bit of a success story Absolutely. of what becomes possible we learned how to do zoom we learned how to uh, contact teachers and pay them by having a bit of a whip round. you know we totally unstructured to start <laughs> with but it was also Nobody quite knew how long that was going to go on for. Mm. So there was no point in putting a lot of structures in place uh, and then having to undo it all. We just wanted to dance together. So that's what we did, even though it was on Zoom. It's such a brilliant story, isn't it, of um, a community coming together and recognising that that joint passion for something and going, do you know what? We're going to do something about this. We're going to make this happen. In the lockdown, one might think that dance would have disappeared and sort of you know died a death because yeah. it really we would think depends on you being in person being in the studio and you're talking about the opposite of that yeah absolutely and you know new adventures played a part because most of us took part in the um, play within film play within film which yeah. was just brilliant partly because it gave us an opportunity to laugh and to giggle and didn't we need that Uh, but partly because we're actually doing something there was a purpose to it so we were learning steps we were making steps up we were trying to remember things Mm. Um, and actually on zoom when you're dancing you can relate to everybody else that you're dancing with it's a bit weird but you can do it so something like the play within film where you've got lots of people coming together from all over the country who'd never get together in the same space if it was physical space and would probably never be able to commit that amount of time and effort and doing the homework in between the sessions and all of those other things you made us do it was just brilliant it was Mm. absolutely what we needed yeah and i just i think there are some real silver linings out of this obviously very tragic time but it's opened up some opportunities yeah and i think made it a lot more accessible would you say oh absolutely and there are so many opportunities internationally as well you know so we at one point we'd got somebody teaching us who was in portugal other people who were joining us from other parts of the world to do open classes that we were organizing it has been absolutely fantastic the other thing is you know, we were always billed as a performing company and you couldn't perform i mean this applied to a lot of professionals as well but as a kind of non-professional community performing company you just don't know what to do what do you do you couldn't commission anybody to choreograph anything because you didn't know when you'd ever be able to do it so we ended up dancing outside a mm. lot mm. <laughs> in all sorts of places fridge and beach was lovely oh, <laughs> not too cold was that in the summer no it was a beautiful day absolutely yeah. gorgeous day and everybody on the beach was just loved what we were doing you know, we, we were kind of doing structured improvisation so it was quite easy to do and we ended up in the sea which you have to on the beach and that was that was a project that one of the members of the company, Stella, had sort of set up and formulated. And so we did a couple of things with her, another one in Harwich in the Redoubt, which is the old fort, Napoleonic fort there, which was <laughs> just the most amazing place to dance. Yeah. 
Yeah. I'm jealous. Yeah. The, like your life, it just sounds so gorgeous. And it obviously you've, you've worked very hard to, to get to this place, but I'm intrigued. Do you feel like you put your own dancing on the back burner to have the career that you had? That's a really interesting question, actually. Mm. I do remember making that transition quite consciously. And it actually, I got fired up by the possibilities of doing some fundraising and getting other people to do things and uh, and policy and all of those things which sound slightly boring. And I was doing classes in various schools and doing classes after school and all those sorts of things. And there was only so much I could do on my own. I realised if I got another four people together and I taught them how to teach, we could have four times the impact. Mm. And that was a sort of light bulb moment. And I went, that's what I should do. I, you know, and that was fantastic. So I carried on doing bits of teaching probably for about another six months to a year. But by that point, it was very much a question of that was a distraction. And the stuff I really needed to get on with was actually advocating for dance, making people take more notice of it, looking at the sort of facilities and the resources that were available and just sort of elbowing a bit more space for dance. <laughs> Gosh, do we need that? And we need that now more than ever. We're going to come back to that point but I'm just going to rewind we're going to go back in time in our little time machine because I'm intrigued Jeanette for you to tell us some of your earliest memories of dance when did dance enter your life and when did you first dance and when did you fall in love with it paint us the picture okay when I was about seven or eight we did a little bit of ballet and tap but that didn't really have a big impact on me and when I got to 11 I went to a school and we lived in the middle of the country so the school was about an hour's bus ride away there was no way you could do after school activities and uh, so that sort of stopped and at school we didn't do any dance it was a girls grammar school so tennis maybe netball definitely mm-hmm. but that was about it really and for one term we did have a teacher who came in and taught some modern educational dance I think we were trees a lot of the time oh yeah so that classic cliche is, classic. is true I think it's classic that, for a reason absolutely and I loved it well there we I go I loved being a tree and then um, I went to teach training college and uh, Newcastle and went to see the Royal Ballet doing Swan Lake mm-hmm. at the Newcastle Theatre Royal in those days the Royal Ballet toured the country and uh, there was very much very little dance available and I went to see Antoinette Sibley and Anthony Dow doing Swan Lake. And there's a bit at the end of that lovely romantic gushy duet when the wicked horrible Baron turns up at the side of the stage. And Antoinette Sibley just twitched her shoulders. I mean, the tiniest, tiniest movement you could imagine. And she went from being this gorgeous, fluid, beautiful woman into almost an automaton swan. Like all her humanity fled. As I say, I've never been the same since, really. It just changed my life. And I did go back to see a second performance of Romeo and Juliet the following day. And I think it was somebody called Margot Fontaine and Rudolf Nureyev. Bit disappointing, I have to say. (laughs) Wow, that's incredible. It was amazing. So you saw them in a matinee in Newcastle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it... It was phenomenal. And then I went to see something a couple about a few months later, the next ballet company that came to Newcastle. Uh, and they had those poet shoes that made that noise on the stage. They mm-hmm. were clunk, 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 clunk. Mm-hmm. And somebody fell over. And I sat there thinking, you know what? I could do that myself. <laughs> so that's when I decided to start dancing and to find somewhere to go dancing uh, and to do ballet. So the the memory, you were there watching that, that Swan Lake. Mm. Was it, what was it that really captured you? Was it 
was it the ballet? I'm, I'm intrigued about what that moment was that made you go, oh, not just that I enjoy watching this, but I want to try this. Well, I think the Antoinette Sibley Anthony Dow performance was so inspiring. I, mm. I didn't even contemplate being able to do it myself. It was far too amazing. It was seeing it was seeing that inspiration on the one level and something that was much more accessible somebody falling over on the other <laughs> that made me think, well, all I can do is have a go mm. and find somewhere to go to. So I think the thing that did it was that combination of, it was really about the dancing. And, and I still think I'm probably a dancer's audience member. Yeah, mm. I can forgive all sorts of choreography if the dancing is amazing. That's what really drives me. I, I love watching dancers. And so you went to take class in ballet. Yeah. Was that with an intention to enjoy doing it? Yeah. Or was it, I, I'm going to have a career? Because I mean, you've had this incredible career. No, not necessarily like performing on the stage, but that was your in, wasn't it? That was your 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 window into this mm -hmm. amazing world that we're in. So what was your, talk us through your thought processes of, you were training to be a teacher. What kind of a teacher were you Primary training? Primary school. Right, okay. Yeah, never any good at remembering the kids' names. Though. Right, okay. That didn't last very long. <laughs> uh, and I couldn't do dinner money either. Um, but my thought process was I just wanted to try. And I do remember leaving after that first class to go home. And I ended up doing jetés up the street. <laughs> I was so excited. It was just, it had ignited something in me. I also remember that very early on, the teacher, you know, you're standing at the bar, well, a chair. Uh, <laughs> you're standing there and you're doing all that kind of pulling up. And, and you, she just told us to do this pour de bras and talked about carving the air as you did the pour de bras to the second. And I just felt for the first time in my life, I had a right to be there. I had a right to be in the world. It was like I was carving my space in the world. So it did a lot for me in terms of confidence, joy, all those things, which I think probably contributed to my career more so than the fact that I'd done some dancing and done some teaching. But it was the fact that it changed me as a person. Mm. and gave me that sort of confidence as a person. Oh, that's so beautiful, Jeanette. Thank you for sharing that. So then what happened? How did you go from <laughs> the splintery chairs to getting a CBE for your services to dance? I mean, it's That's a very long story. I am very give old. Us a, a whistle-stop tour? You might need to speed me up a little bit. Okay. But I, yeah, this is sort of the country route of whistle stop chores. Okay, so cool. I left Newcastle, went back to York, and I rang every school in the book, dance school, to say, could I come and do classes? And they wouldn't have me because I was too old. <gasps> so we're now going back into the maybe late 70s, early 80s. There was no such thing as community dance. There was very little contemporary dance. When I was in York, I saw London Contemporary Dance Theatre doing their, one of their first residences. Nobody did that kind of thing. It was a very different world. And eventually I did find this amazing woman who let me go to her class. <laughs> she decided that I was so desperate she couldn't stop me. <laughs> um, but, you know, it would let me do everything. So we did ballet, tap, modern gymnastics, uh, oh, revised Greek. If you've ever tried revised Greek, it's gorgeous. <laughs> and then eventually she let me teach contemporary to her ballet girls, which was amazing in those days. It was mm. very remarkable. But I think that kind of fed that urge I later developed to do something about the infrastructure for dance. You know, it's all right having a few great dancers but if they have to be either very rich or very lucky or have the right kind of parents or go to the right sort of school, then we're losing a whole load of talent that we know is out there. We know lots more people 
could enjoy this thing, could be amazing dancers, could be amazing choreographers. But they denied that possibility because nobody knows about it. Mm. Um, yeah, it was quite a driver. Anyway, eventually I managed to get to Laban for a year which was remarkable to get retrained as a dancer. How daft is that? It's brilliant. <laughs> they were very, I think um, it was Marion North and Bonnie Bird when I was there, and they were both really good at sort of thinking, well, there's a bit of talent, there's a spark, there's something mm. there. And taking that elitism out. Is and get rid of all those rules about you have to be under the age of five and you can't be more than five foot two if you're a girl. Anyway, I, I did that. And because I'd done teaching and a bit of dancing, I ended up working with several dance and education companies of various kinds and ended up doing one where I became the artistic director, which was called Lynx in Lincoln. And it was Jeanette, Jeanette and Janetta. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, bizarre. <laughs> and that was it. That was the company. There were various other people came and went, but we were sort of mainstays. And, were they uh, were they let go because they weren't called Jeanette? Yeah. That, that was yeah, yeah, really yeah, yeah, yeah. Had to be called Jeanette. I couldn't have applied. No, sorry. No, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> but we basically went around schools in Lincolnshire and Humberside and we would do little performances in the school and teach workshops and it was really lovely and very very good fun but eventually like always the money ran out and the sort of policy became much more of having an individual community dance artist somewhere and then ended up as I say in Gillingham which I loved and then eventually I got to work at the Arts Council as the dance officer with responsibility for education so those strands have kind of come and gone all the way through really eventually I got promoted to be senior officer and then I went to work on senior management which wasn't dance then I sort of opted out of dance for about a year okay. <laughs> then I had to go back again <laughs> <laughs> so why did you opt out I didn't really know where I was going to go next and mm. what I was going to do next and it felt a little bit as though some of the issues and the problems that we seemed to be making progress with were coming back again it was that cyclical thing which happens i now know with every area of life so that sort of process could be quite um, draining really mm. and a bit debilitating and you kind of go oh, well i can't make any difference and all of that so i went off and did project management for the dome and then realized actually i really could, didn't care about much other than dance. <laughs> <laughs> so I started volunteering for Dance UK and then when Jane Attenborough left, I became the director of Dance UK. I managed to build it up a bit and that it, that was fantastic, but very scary. You look back, we didn't know what we were doing at all. <laughs> all sorts of things. And just being very responsive to issues that came up in the dance sector. And of course, it could be anything. It was you know, the loss of training grants at one point, dance injuries at another point. Mm. And you see, having to reinvent yourself all the time, I think was probably very good for me. Then back to the Arts Council as Director of Dance. And then after that, the Arts Council kind of did another restructure and all the art form directors were made redundant at roughly the same time. And... Funnily enough, by that point, I had this amazing kind of sympathy vote from the sector. So I didn't know what I was going to do. But various people came up to me and said, well, would you do this? Would you do that? Would you? And before I knew what I was doing, really, I thought, oh, actually, I suppose I'm freelance now. Mm. And is that where we met you? Then? Yeah. So yeah. you started off consulting, didn't you? And, and, and yeah. helping us with some fundraising. Yeah. How did, tell us about that part of the story then. Did you know about our work bef beforehand? Yeah. And how did you meet Matthew? Well, I sort of, I suppose, oh. 
I can't quite remember the first time I met Matthew, but I knew of his work from very early days, you know, from Spitfire and this the small group of people who came out of Larbon, because I was at the Arts Council at that point. It was very exciting to see all that sort of young and different talent. And it was a point when there was a lot of different kinds of choreographers coming out, particularly from Larbon. Certainly seeing Swan Lake and going, oh my God, why has nobody thought Swans should be male before? Mm. Because I'd only ever known Swan Lake as a as classical ballet and to see it done with contemporary dance and contemporary dancers and very much um it had this sort of impact and immediacy which however beautiful the balletic version can be, it can't quite do that, other mm. than Antoinette Sibley and her shoulders. But Matthew's version was just absolutely stunning. So I knew that and Nutcracker again was one of those things where you kinda of go why didn't anybody think that it had to be set in a children's home and they'll, you know, all of those things were just kind of, it's just remarkable. It's so appropriate. It's so fitting. It's so right. And it took the genius of Matthew Bourne to come up with that idea and make it fit. And it was just fantastic. And then uh, when I was at the Arts Council, we had lots of debates because one of the things about yeah, ventures, which you'll be very familiar with, is it's very good at raising private investment as well as public funding, as well as actually most of the money comes from ticket sales. Mm. And that's a model that the Arts Council at that point found a little bit of a challenge. It's the only company that works that way. It's yeah. somewhere between the sort of subsidised and commercial sector. So we went through all sorts of hoops to get money to the company because it, yeah, it was pretty obvious it was very well spent, that money. It was going to be a fantastic investment. And yeah. there's some of the work that was never going to raise that kind of private investment. So interesting <laughs> because it's such a, a British company, isn't it, really? And yeah. it also does an incredible job at, at developing audiences because it's so accessible. So it really is uh, a great commodity, really, for for the for this country's creative output, you know, in, in dance. So coming back, so you knew about the work. How did you then start doing work for us with us it started not long after i became freelance and robert noble um, was at that point putting in applications to the arts council and finding it a bit of a challenge <laughs> and he was quite keen to find somebody else to write the application so i think i can't i can't actually remember which ones i did or what order but i did several project funded applications for different kinds of productions i do remember one of them was cinderella because that was quite an easy one to write. It's such an obvious story. And thank goodness they were all successful. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> it's a pleasure. <laughs> and then we got to a point where the Arts Council shifted their funding systems. So they invited people to apply to be a national portfolio organisation, which is a way of talking about regular funding. So they'd get regular funding for three years instead of having to apply for every production. And by that point, there was a lot of, I mean, we've been very successful with project funding, but there's a lot of sort of concern that at some point our luck would run out uh, and the Arts Council would not be able to kind of, kind of repeat fund the same company in for different work. Uh, so we had long conversations. I think it was about a six or eight week period between the announcement and the deadline. And I was doing probably, I think at that stage, six or seven applications with other people. Of course, everyone wanted to. Everybody everyone wanted, to wanted a piece of Jeanette's brain <laughs> and expertise. And, you know, we're a charity and we we have to have a board. And so 
were, was was it an ask? Please be in the chair. Like how <laughs> how did you end up becoming our chair? Um, it was one of those um, evenings where we'd gone to see. I don't even remember the show. I'm hopeless, aren't I? Robert came up to me in the drinks party and said, uh, "We we know we have to reorganise our board and so we're looking for some new trustees. We wondered if you'd be willing to be a trustee." And I went, oh, "Yeah, bite your hand off. Fantastic. Love it. Love it. Love it." And then a little bit later, I said, "And we were thinking we'd like you to be the chair. Don't say anything now. Give me a ring in a couple of days." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. The, you weren't really backed into a corner. You you were like, this is absolutely what I want to oh, do. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, uh, yeah, I think it's the best job I've ever had. Oh. <laughs> Even though it's not really a job. But yeah, it's just been the most amazing experience. It's such an important role. And we get, we, I want to come back to what that role kind of pertains to. Could you explain to everyone listening who Robert is? Because oh. I, it, he is a huge such a vitally important part of our organization but perhaps to some might seem quite invisible mm-hmm. um so i'd love you to just yeah tell us my who... take on robert um he's an unsung hero he is absolutely a hero he is probably one of the most generous people i've ever come across he is very happy to be in the back room to slog away at all those negotiations, funding agreements, uh, contracts, getting the rights to everything left, right and centre. I mean, he works very hard for New Adventures. Uh, He also works for Cameron McIntosh. And actually those two things are a fantastic mix because a lot of the contacts and a lot of the things he does for Cameron McIntosh really benefit New Adventures. So we're going on the record to say a massive thank you to the legend that is Robert Noble. Absolutely. You talked about the cyclical nature of dance and needing to advocate for dance. Why do you think dance struggles to be seen and appreciated, to be viewed as as viable as an art form, but just just in it in itself? What why do you think that is, and what can we do to help? Well, I think. There are lots of reasons for it. And one of those reasons is it's a very contemporary art form. Pre the 1950s, 60s, 60s really, there was no contemporary dance in this country. We're talking mid-60s onwards and it came from America. And we're very good at stories in this country. You know, we've got Shakespeare to blame to some extent. Not even non-narrative. It has to be written down, it's in words. And we're also very good at music and that's been around since medieval times and it's all connected to the church. So both of those things have got a very long history. If you think about the performing arts, you're basically talking about moving, singing, speaking or playing music. You know, the, the performing arts. And dance is very much late to the table. So I think that's part of the issue. So we haven't quite yet got to the critical mass. And I've seen that difference in my lifetime. Mm. The number of companies that are around, the size of audiences that are around, the number of people taking part in dance is massive compared to what it was when I was that 19-year-old trying to find a dance teacher in York. So I think that's one issue. It's just visibility. Mm. I think alongside of that, there are those slightly more complicated things that you know, we've always had a, a sort of hierarchy where anything physical is not as good as anything intellectual. So that sort of you know, work with your brain is always paid better. It's seen to have a higher status. Mm. The people that work with their hands and their bodies seem to be more menial, um, mm. probably not paid as well, and certainly looked down upon a bit. And then you put across that all the stuff that came out. Well, I blame 
<laughs> Victoria and Albert, really. Well, Albert for dying. Because Victoria really liked dancing, apparently. But she stopped it when he died. Uh, and then you've got all that stuff, the Victorians covering up their legs, the shame of the body. Uh, the, in the 50s, there was a, there was a little brilliant book called um, A National Ballet or something. And, uh, I can't remember exactly now. But it did talk about um, wearing tights made men gay. So there's a whole thing to do with masculinity in dance and homosexuality in dance and just ridiculous stuff. Mm. But I think we tend to have a ruling class which come from a very particular sector of society where some of that stuff that most of us would go, ah, so old-fashioned, life's not like that anymore. But it's what they've grown up with. So... Yeah, we're talking about politicians and policymakers. Mm. They may well understand that music is important and not be able to say anything against it. They may well understand football is important because it's economically very viable, but they're not going to go into something as niche as as dance. Whereas actually I firmly believe that a degree of dance education fits people for all sorts of aspects of life. Mm. Just that physical literacy is something we need these days, and we really needed it during the pandemic. You must have walked down the street the same as I have, going, oh, if any people learned choreography, mm. they'd be able to get two metres apart. Yeah, <laughs> Mostly they couldn't. They're absolutely hopeless at it. Um, uh, so there's, and, and just how we are in the public realm, a lot of the time we don't know how to behave. We don't know how to relate to other people in a way that's not either combative or totally secret or myopic yeah we can't we're not relaxed in that way whereas actually i think a little bit of dance at school a bit of understanding of it a bit of exploration of it a bit of experience of it would make people much better adults Mm. oh i totally agree maybe you can give us one insight obviously you did this a lot in your in your professional career but what can we do what can what can anyone do or maybe dance companies do to to influence any policymakers or to really champion the the kind of state of dance as, as being this viable art form have you got any any top tips or thoughts keep doing it mm. just keep doing it and the number of times you know people who had nothing much to do with dance would experience it for the first time understand that passion from the people who are involved in it in some way or just like it um and that changes them uh so yeah get as many people as possible to come and see a show or get involved in a rehearsal in some way or a, a, a workshop getting people to experience it is really really important um that's the thing that changes people i think you, you were talking about the visibility and the accessibility and you're right that's what the company you know does so well you have stepped down as chair mm-hmm. at the end of your tenure you're staying with us on the board what have been some of your highlights from your time of being on the board i think probably every production <laughs> it's always quite nerve-wracking <laughs> the first time I see something because I've had nothing to do with it whatsoever <laughs> in terms of the artistic side but I think probably the highlights have been slightly smaller moments I do I will always remember watching things in, in rehearsal that's mm. so special and that is just brilliant and certainly with the red shoes I was there the first morning when the company came together everybody's standing around in a circle going I'm so and so and my role is this and this and you just kind of go, this is so big it was such a lot it felt like such a lot of people and all those dancers knew what their roles were and and then Matt talked us through 
the production with the music and Les Brotherton doing designs and he knew what was happening every moment for the next hour and a half. You know? <laughs> and he just did the one-man show of the Red Shoes. <laughs> it was phenomenal and it was amazing. Absolutely brilliant. And I actually went down to Plymouth to see that. I think I saw the final dress rehearsal, which never quite got finished because they were overrunning so much. <laughs> yeah, I was there. There was an invited audience and it got to like the, the kind of climax of the piece. And they were like, and you'll have to come back to see the rest of, uh, to see what happens. It's, exactly. It was such a cliffhanger because they hadn't finished it. <laughs> exactly. That, yeah, live, live performance. Um, oh, it was never What a joy, what a thrill. But- yeah, it was just fantastic. So it's those moments I think I will always treasure as highlights. Uh, yeah. yeah, I did enjoy going. I did go to Australia when Lord of the Flies was in Melbourne. And that was amazing because suddenly you realise how you know, another country appreciates something. And it was great that they took it on. It was really brave and fantastic. And, you know, they were talking about having indigenous boys involved. And I think they found three and they thought that was amazing. We were all kind of going, there's only three. That's not really good, is it? We should have done better. Uh, But the art centre was going, no, we never had anybody. Mm. (laughs) So it's that kind of thing where you kind of go, okay, yeah, my, I have to just uh, adjust my expectations and my norms a bit. You were really key in the development of the Centre of Advanced Trainings, the CAT schemes across the country. Why was that important for you to to envisage a, a different way of, of training? I guess in my eyes, it's, it's very much, even though there is a classical ballet element, it was it was starting to give platform to contemporary dance training. Yeah. Am, am I wrong in that? Or? No, no, that's mm. absolutely right. It's quite interesting because um, it came out of the music and dance scheme. What happened was the it was the boarding schools. I was on the advisory board or something. And we had debates about, you know, should public money be paying for the hotel costs of these students? Do they have to go away to train in ballet and go to a boarding school? Could they not do do something nearer home and why is there no training in dance for contemporary dance or barat natyam or uh hip-hop or you know why is it just ballet so there are lots and lots of debates around that and it was one of those brilliant stories where for some reason that nobody ever quite understood a little bit of money became available for some kind of pre-vocational training for the music schools and the civil servant who was running us at the time just said there's a hundred thousand for dance what do you want to do with it <laughs> Back of an envelope, we had several plans. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you did, like that. You were ready. Just like that, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was the beginning of the Centre for Advanced Training. And mm. we went, you know, we've got a number of spaces now that people can work in and they don't have to leave home. Mm. They can get advanced training much more locally. And maybe it's weekends, maybe it's one night a week. And so we decided it was important that there were good facilities for those dancers because they were going to be brilliant dancers. They were in the future. So buildings was one of the things we were concerned about. Mm. That and beyond that, we wanted a bit of a national spread. And of course, much, much later on, when there's 10 across the country, uh, I think now, and each of them has probably got between 60 and 80 young people from the ages of 11 to 18 and mostly they go on to vocational training and careers in dance so now some of them you you kind of come across you go, oh they were a cat student which is fantastic mm. but for me the real highlight was I used to work for an organization called Dance Consortium that toured international dance dance companies and we toured Alvin Ailey from America and uh, 
we managed to persuade them. It took a long time, but we got there in the end to let us borrow their rehearsal director, Matthew Rushing, to work with five students from every one of the cats. And they came to Ipswich and took over Dance East and to see 45 young people doing the opening of Revelations, which is the big spiritual number, which is the sort of iconic Alvin Ailey piece. Mm. It was just, oh, even thinking about it now brings me to tears. It oh, was phenomenal. I yeah. bet I've got goosebumps yeah. just imagining it and I wasn't <laughs> even there. I know, what yeah. What a beautiful memory for you. And what a legacy, Jeanette. I mean, congratulations because... They're, it's a remarkable achievement, and and you know I I know that those cat schemes do so much for young aspiring dancers. Because for me, what really resonates in this conversation is this idea of striving toward equity. One size doesn't fit all. There's there's nothing against those boarding schools, but what about everybody else? Yeah. And you have been asking that question. What about everybody else? Uh, what are the other routes into this industry for people that maybe one can't afford it, two can't travel there, three, you know, it's just not going to be accessible for them. And thank you for for what you've done because it, it, it is huge. And I just wanted to just just personally just ask you the question, what was it like getting a CBE? <laughs> what was that experience like? Um, it was extraordinary. Does it still feel real? Do you... Uh, well, yourself. it's 2013, so I've kind of got used to it. Okay. But yeah, I mean, you get the letter which says the Queen and the Prime Minister is minded to. You kind of go, no, they're not. Yeah. Is this not a really. joke? Like, who, yeah. <laughs> who's, who's faked this? Who's forged this? Yeah, you know, it's <laughs> your colleagues. Incredibly grateful, I think. Yes, mm. it's, that was the big thing. It was just like, oh, yeah. Mm. <laughs> Going to Buckingham Palace is a bit strange. Jeanette, we're going to move on slightly. We're going to um, talk about we're going to talk about music. Oh, good. And we asked you beforehand to give us a little insight into a piece of music that you love to dance to. And I'm just going to let everyone into a secret that Jeanette found this very difficult. She's got very eclectic <laughs> tastes, everybody, um, as I would expect, and uh, found it hard to, to narrow something down. So we, we're going to listen to uh, a little segment, and this is The Heart Ask Pleasure First by Michael Nyman from the film The Piano. so so beautiful and evocative and soothing why did you pick that piece of music as one of your choices and and what does it mean to you and and yeah tell us it is dance Uh, and every time i hear it i want to dance i saw you dancing as well over there yeah yeah you can't sit still and it's that lovely kind of lyrical round circular. Mm, it's lilting isn't it's it lilting. it's lilting yeah, yeah it's got an yeah. ebb and a flow yeah and you kind of get carried away in its yes. in its wake exactly i i did love the film which was again was very evocative and it made me cry it's quite sad but it's got lots of emotions running through it and there is a bit of that um resilience and that overcoming difficulty comes through towards the end and and yet it's not a happy ending mm. <laughs> so but there's something that just sustains her through that mm. very, you kind of well I find I could respond to I could react you know, feel for yeah um, but and have you danced to this piece of music? oh yeah loads yeah yeah it, all it, in my sitting room okay and then just start moving well yes it's it's that thing I, I, whenever it starts the thing I always want to do is just 
take my arm. Yeah, it's, a, yeah, it's one of those elbow dances. You know those uh -huh. things? That yeah, just, you just start those and spirals. And those, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it just does that every time. But I think probably almost anything by Michael Nyman mm. is... I think he's a dancer, really. He mm. just dances through music. But it's all dancing. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, yeah, I don't really see the point of music that doesn't have dance going with it. You know, yeah. It's a bit... And pointless as far as I can see. Music was made to be danced to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely. <laughs> Amazing, <laughs> I love that. Jeanette, we're going to move on to our quick fire round. <gasps> okay, are you ready? No. No, Never. Good, good. We're going to start with a word association. I'm going to say the name of a Matthew Bourne show. And I'd like you to say the first word that comes into your head. Okay, are you ready? Yeah. Swan Lake. Beautiful. Carman. Powerful. Smoky. Oh, sorry. That's, can I have some more words? <laughs> no, Smoky, just one. sexy. Just one. <laughs> Okay, we'll let you have three. Edward Scissorhands. Cute. <laughs> Cinderella. Romantic. Nutcracker. Funny. Romeo and Juliet. Oh, most gorgeous, wonderful thing ever. <laughs> My favourite forever and ever and ever. Why do you love that one so much? I love the young people. It's a very, very young cast. Mm. And there's something very raw and energetic about them. It's beautiful. And you know, the, the lead dancers are just stunning and I think it's very resonant of all sorts of things the institution mm. the being separated being drugged <laughs> being done to mm. and finding a way out of that it's a sort of basic human struggle but so beautifully done yeah. and it just looks gorgeous mm. uh, yeah, what is not to like? <laughs> mm, it's just such a special piece, and yeah. obviously has a very close place in in my heart. Having worked with all those young dancers that we found from around the country oh, and got yeah. them got them to perform on stage with the professionals, it was and with Ariel as with well, Ariel Smith, who was the yeah, young associate choreographer who's having the most phenomenal career. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Mm. Okay, next question: If you could turn any story, film, or book into a Matthew Bourne production, what would you pick? Can I cheat? Yeah. Okay. Um, I asked this question of a few people knowing I was coming here today. Uh-huh. Partly because I was quite nervous. But anyway, I spoke to Brendan Keeney at Dance East as the artistic director, and he immediately came up with the perfect answer. The life of Sir Frederick Ashton. Oh. So it's not actually a book or a film. So biopic. It would be a biopic. Well, not a pick. No, a bio a dance. Bio <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's just perfect. It's got everything going for it. Because yeah, he was born in South America, lived his life down there, saw Anna Pavlova dance. You can see the piece already. His mother was from Suffolk, so he died in Suffolk, buried in Su just outside I. And oh, I yet, didn't know there was a Suffolk connection. Oh, very, very strong. Yeah, he thought of Suffolk as his home, apparently. Yeah. But his, um, his dad died, uh, committed suicide. Much later in life, his partner died in a car crash. Loads of tragedy, loads Drama. of love. Mm. And he was a hugely famous international choreographer. And the amount of work he did and the range of his work would just be perfect source material. 
I can see it. I can, it, it <laughs> yeah, it's it's a very astute choice, Jeanette. Um, well, I, I can't take credit for the choice. I have to give credit to Brendan for that one. Brendan. But it, when he said it, it's just like perfect. Have you have you spoken to Matthew about this? No. Okay. Next Will he next board to meeting. This? <laughs> 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 you just like slip it into the I any other business. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Next question, Jeanette. What is one piece of advice you would give to the next generation wanting to get into the arts industry? Follow your passion. Mm. Just simple, really. Mm. It won't always be easy. And if you want to be a dancer, it really won't be easy. But, you know, if your passion is dance, as I have lived to tell the tale, there are many, many, many ways of doing it and being engaged with it and making a difference. Uh, So, yeah, follow your passion. Perfect. What a perfect answer for our Born to Dance podcast. Thank you so much. Following on from that, if you could pass on the love of dance to somebody or a group who may not have the chance to experience it, who would it be and why? I think, you know, who it would be would probably be, you know, politicians. (laughs) Do you know what? That's what I said. Surprise, surprise. We share a mind, Jeanette. Yeah. Mm. Tell us, okay, tell us why. Because they have the potential power to make it better for everyone. They they could do stuff that makes dance much more accessible, that puts it onto the national curriculum, that means that kids can do it as, I think secondary schools in particular, you know, you can't stop young kids dancing. They're going to do it. But once they get to that sort of puberty and the body gets a bit awkward, and they're 11, 12, 13, they're thinking about being adults, they need to grow into dance, not grow out of it. Actually, politicians could make that difference. They could make it something that every young person in this country could experience at an age when it would make a difference to their lives. Mm. Do you think that dance is a human right? Yeah. It's a, it's a hum- it's it's so natural. You know, kids do it before they talk, before they do anything else. They're dancing, and they carry on dancing until they grow out of it. We stop them. Mm. It's the only human pursuit. We kind of suggest you shouldn't do it once you get to be grown up. It's for children, and that's a ridiculous thing to be saying to people. Mm. Um, so it's it's a it's a human <sighs> instinct. It's a human drive. So of course it's got to be a human right. What an amazing way to end our conversation, Jeanette. It's been so beautiful and special for me to talk to you today. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. It's been such fun. If you enjoyed this episode, then please go check out our other episodes, which you can find on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast and YouTube. If you want to know more about new adventures, then check out the links in our show notes. I have been your host, Paul Smethurst. This series has been produced by Hattie Moyer, and our researcher is Stephen Daly. The theme music is by Terry Davies from the production Play Without Words. For more information about the additional music in this episode, please check the show notes. This has been Born to Dance, brought to you by New Adventures. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Bye for now.